Do you suspect or even know if your teenager is using drugs? Do you struggle with figuring out what to do next? Do you feel overwhelmed, scared, or angry? Well, you are not alone. This is the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast, where we explore all the signs of teen drug abuse, reveal science-based impact, and share potential solutions that might just be the next thing you need to try. Here's your host, Zeev Raviv. Hello, and welcome to the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast. Together with me today is Jean Farmer, a substance abuse counselor with nine years of experience directly as a counselor and also a lot of peripheral experience as a social worker in the Midwest, USA, helping families and teens and adults with drug abuse. Hello, Jean, how are you? Great, thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for taking the time to share a few ideas with us and help parents with psychoeducation and some perspective. So I'll start with a more personal question. What was the hardest part as a counselor on the topic of substance abuse for you? Okay, are we talking adults or teens? In general, Um, just for you as as someone. Oh, my. I think that the hardest part, I didn't find it hard to identify, especially with the women that I worked with, because that was my last six years, because there are other kinds of addictive behaviors. And a lot of us have areas of our lives that we do not simply, you can't just simply decide and then kick this bad habit. It is not as simple as that. So I, I didn't have any trouble with that. I think one of the hardest things was understanding, not understanding, but there's a lot of unhappiness and there's often trauma and family background things that make people unhappy enough to want to check out of their lives. That was hard to, there's a lot of, of unhappiness there. So empathizing with that was hard. Yeah. There was a lot of trauma, especially with the women that I was working with. So in a life cycle of, of someone that starts with substance abuse when they are young, you've been working with people that got to adulthood and still had uh, substance abuse problems. Mm-hmm. So can you paint a picture for us about how does it look like when What are some of the problems that those people have as adults that have years and years of experience of substance abuse? Okay. Well, first of all, we considered it what they call a biopsychosocial disease. There's no one cause. There's probably a heritable factor. So substance abuse runs in families. So you know that if you have a parent who has a substance abuse problems, you're at higher risk for that. And then trauma in the sometime during the childhood or teen years, this makes a person more susceptible to substance abuse. So many of the women that I worked with had been abused, had experienced violence or neglect or sexual abuse or just many of those factors that make a person more fragile. They're carrying around unresolved issues, sometimes mental health, anxiety, depression issues. And then the third thing is the social context. What are the kids' friends doing? 
what what are the things that the child or young person is being exposed to in the home and also in their peer group is it does it look normal when they look around them to be smoking drinking using weed or popping pills so all of those factors increase the likelihood that a young person is going to be at least trying substances and just like you mentioned, there's a, also a genetic component to the tendency yes. to be addicted. Yeah. That's why it runs in families that are, other families have been maybe experimenting with drugs and maybe even were addicted to a period of time, but were able to put that behind them for a very long uh, period of time, even forever. But on some families, the, the tendency to maintain the, the, addiction is stronger what type of lifestyles do, 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 do those people live as an adult like do they actually have jobs do they have anything like of, like what type of a lifestyle is that yeah one of the things that makes it hard for people to think of themselves as having a problem is this image that we have especially for instance alcohol when people hear the word alcohol they're thinking of the homeless drunk in the gutter. And people can function for more or less long periods of times, years even in, in some cases. They can, they can, there's what's called a functional alcoholic. They can be abusing alcohol or drugs and still keeping a job, still taking care of their kids, still doing things. Now, the thing is that it in you know 99 cases out of 100 it's a progressive process it's going to get worse over time it can be better for a while then worse but it's it tends to be progressive it gets worse and eventually end up where you're losing relationships losing jobs losing everything because this thing just sort of takes over so you can yeah. see people in all stages of that process in a way, it's a little bit like a casino. It's a life of gambling. Yeah. Where, yes, they might maintain some sort of down, a slow downward, downward spiral where they, mm -hmm. they gradually lose relationships, gradually lose more jobs, gradually dysfunction yes. as, as parents in, in more situations. But they also, like, often get into a car and drive or often get into a situation where life and death are at stake and they're risking yes. their family oh, members. Yes. Oh my, yes. Just this week, we had an incident in, in Israel of a young 18-year-old girl that was driving while under the influence of, of alcohol and of drugs. She just went out of a mm -hmm. nature, nature party and she went into her car and she drove home and she hit another car with a family of five and she killed the baby that was 10 oh. months old. And she's going oh. to live with that. Yes. Right? That horrible shame and stain and probably going through uh, incarceration for, and being in jail mm -hmm. for a few years. Yes. So li the lifestyle, there is a functional option but it's not with it's not uh, like it, it could be a stage right yes, and a temporary yes. stage it might end sooner or later and i know that there's a lot of 
debate about systems and ways to treat a situation like that. And some of them are through treatment centers, rehab, and some mm-hmm. of them is outside of those such centers. And I know you have actually experience in helping people even without the need to go through full rehab. Can you tell us more about what's that all about? Yes, I've actually done both. My more recent experience has been with outpatient treatment. Something like 85% of our clients were referred by the courts because these, these adults had been had drug-related offenses. Some of them were misdemeanors, some of them were felonies, but they were court-mandated to treatment, which meant that there was accountability that there was a parole officer checking on them and drug testing them randomly so that they knew whether they were using, they knew whether they were coming to treatment. And the interesting thing is you would think that if it is mandatory, then the people will be less motivated for treatment and it won't work. Not the case. That factor of accountability is actually more important than the motivation. The people who were mandated by the courts had a better success rate than the people who were self-referred. So because once people get clean, start learning some of the tools, start understanding what's going on, learning some of the tools to cope other than with drugs, because that's what it's about. It's about how do I cope with life? Some people have more to cope with than others. They start getting the drugs out of their systems. They start waking up feeling better. Their health is better. They have a birthday party with their kid and they can remember what happened. (laughs) They, They start liking their life better. They decide that life without is better than life with the drugs. And they kind of get, they, they kind of buy in somewhere along the way. Now, that's, that, that doesn't mean you've won the battle, far from it, but it is definitely the first step. They can get motivated and buy in in the process. So a lot of time, your experience showed that context of accountability, because if you will not cooperate, you'll go back to jail or you will be yes. penalized yes. in all sorts of ways that the, the clarity around that was more efficient, more so stronger to get results than actually someone being asked by his family to start this process. And yeah, I, I think the family could provide that if they were willing to, you know, and especially with the young people. In my most recent job, I was dealing with adults. So you can't, only the courts can compel adults, but parents can compel their teens, but they have to be willing to set limits. They have to be willing to drug test. They have to be willing to lay down consequences and able to enforce them, but they can do it. They have the power legally to do it. They have the the will. (laughs) And sometimes keeping your kid, your teen uh, accountable can be easier relatively because you have more control over their freedom. For example, the freedom of movement and the freedom of of using a phone. When I talk with my daughter about how come she stopped using drugs, she will often talk about the fact that I don't want to use drugs again because you'll take my phone. That's (laughs) that's the first sentence. Now, 
she needs to actually believe that to be true and see that that it was true. We mm-hmm. went through a, a full two months that were very hard when we cleaned her up and she did not have a phone for two months and it was in a way quite traumatic for a teenager to be kind of disconnected from society and we, we, we even moved her to another school to yes. make sure that she's creating new relationships. So it is possible to have an outpatient to help them, but it helps if there's first some sort of accountability, either by the court or by the family, they need to know what will be the consequences if they fail. The consequence needs to be meaningful enough. It's not like you should do it because you like it. And it reminds me of how in mental health issues, a lot of times, People that are struggling with mental health issues, they they cannot actually see that they are struggling with it. They might Mm -hmm. see the symptoms, but it won't help you to tell them, oh, you're struggling from that because they actually don't see it from within. So they don't really see the problem with being an addict or with using, with abusing drugs or substance. Uh, They enjoy self-medicating. Yeah. And one of the things that happens with teenagers is they are... Their brains are not fully formed. They are very sensitive to rewards. And it's like the consequences or the bad things that could happen to them are just not real to them. And that doesn't click in until their early 20s, early or mid-20s, that that awareness of the possible negative consequences has any power over their decision-making. And that's with a normal brain because... If a kid grows up using a mood-altering substance, their brain is, the reward system of their brain is getting rewired to need that. And that's a powerful hit that they will never forget. And the more that that happens, the more their brains are being wired to need that abnormally strong feeling, positive feeling that they got from the substance. Yeah. So what do you think parents can do to avoid the situation where their teens are going to grow up to be adults that are maybe functional addicted people, but still in a progressive downward spiral? Well, I think that you gave a couple of really good examples. You laid down consequences. You took her phone. You moved her to a different school. Yeah, that is that is important. I think in terms of three things, three primary things that parents can do. One is example. Do the parents smoke? Do the parents drink? Nearly all, not all, but nearly all of the adult women that I was working with, their you know what their first their first gateway drug was? Cigarettes. Nicotine is actually more addictive than heroin. It just doesn't kill you as fast. And I see your eyes getting big. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that either. Yeah, um, I did not know that either. And you know what? Kids want to be grownups. I deliberately learned to drink coffee and worked at it for three weeks so that I could sit with the grownups after dinner and drink coffee. And I wanted to be like a grownup. Okay. And it absolutely does not work to do to say, do as I say, not as I do. That has never worked for anybody. So if you take seriously substances, you are not going to be smoking. And 
or there's no level of alcohol consumption that is safe either. That is just a recent something that the studies have gotten clear on. There is no safe, innocuous level of alcohol consumption. So the parents smoking and drinking, not to mention other mood-altering drugs, and I'm not talking about prescription drugs like antidepressants or other things. If you are prescribed something for a specific reason, you need to be taking it. That is a protective factor. But the parent's example is one thing. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, I think communication, trying to keep the channels of communication open to your kids. This is a protective factor. Kids are more motivated to please and adopt the values of their parents if they have a decent relationship with them. When I was a teenager, clear back in the 1960s, my best friend, the drug scene was just starting to appear at my high school that long ago. And my best friend got very involved with that. She was popping pills. She was smoking weed. And I was very tempted to just try it because I was so curious. And my home life wasn't the best. At that point, I had unresolved things going on. But my relationship with my parents was good enough. I did the dorkiest thing in the world. And I actually asked them if they would be heartbroken if I tried weed. And of course, they say, oh, no, we are, we will. Yes, we would never understand. We would be heartbroken. And I thought they were really overreacting. But I decided that it wasn't worth messing up my relationship with my parents. And so my friend and I kind of parted ways. I found other friends and I never, never did try it. And even in college, I was offered the opportunity and I would just pass the joint along. They were, <laughs> they would hand it to me and I'd pass it to the next person. But that was a protective factor. I had a good enough, doesn't have to be perfect, but a good enough relationship with my parents that I wasn't willing to mess with it. And the third thing is monitoring. This is something that I learned about in my various professional capacities. There are ways you have to, especially if you know that your child has has tried drugs, is around that, whatever, monitoring. You have to know who are their friends. One of the tools that I would give parents in one of my jobs was an approved friend list. And there were a list of questions to ask about each friend. And one of them is, can I, I need the phone number of your friend's parents. I need to be able to talk with them. I need to know that if you go to their house, there will always be an adult there. No parties with no adult supervision. What kind of things? Are they good students? Are they serious about their studies? Are they one way to get free monitoring is like on a sports team. Okay. Get the kid involved in an activity that that where you actually need a healthy body to do that. <laughs> that gives them some motivation to stay clean. But those three things, example, communication, and then monitoring. And in, and if the monitoring means random drug tests, you can buy those at the, at the um, drugstore. But one whole facet of monitoring that I can't speak to very much because of my age, but that's the social media. There are ways to monitor social media that I can't speak to because that came along afterwards. It makes your job harder. But I think that's a, uh, an important piece too. 
No, I relate to everything you just said. It's so important to talk about these topics. I just want to share my two cents about uh, monitoring. I actually see it. I love the fact that you mentioned the friends and the list of questions because I remember back when we did not know yet that our kid was using drugs. When we asked her to talk to the parents of a friend that she was seeing daily, she refused. And she explained that when we said, okay, let's, we're dropping you off. Let's just walk in, just say hello. And she refused to that too and explained that it's very messy and they, they don't want to, I don't know what, it was some, <laughs> some, some story. And it didn't dawn on us yet. We didn't want to believe that there's maybe some risk involved because she was always very safe and very friendly and very reliable. And we just did not want to believe that there was something going on. So I, I can relate to that. And, and if they refuse to answer those questions, that's a big sign, warning sign. But I also want to say something that I, I talk with other adults, parents, and they, they actually are afraid of the other type of monitoring that exists. And I want to just mention what they are and how important they are, at least for me in my experience. First of all, there's the physical search. Like you have to actually own, this is your house and it's a room in your house and you do not want that house, that room to include drugs in it. So her searching physically and even searching her bag is something that if you deny that from yourself, you basically deny the ability to know if there's a problem or not or to know if the problem was contained. The second yeah. part of monitoring is the phone. It's not it's just like you need to be able to take away the phone because of all sorts of situations like keeping her accountable. You also need to have the ability to search through the phone. And I know that's terrible. And I know that hurts the, the, the relationship and hurts the trust and they want privacy and you want to give them privacy. But in certain situations, like that privacy comes with a very, very costly price. And once you apply monitoring, that actually requires you to monitor the phone too. And mm -hmm. uh, finally, with drug testing, uh, drug testing actually is in, have improved so so much in the last two decades, right? I remember uh, drug tests 20 years ago actually could only catch someone that used drugs for like 48 hours later or 72 hours later. These mm -hmm. days, more like a month. And yes, that's, it that's, takes longer to get the results back, but yes. So these days you actually can get the results in your home with urinal testing and it gives you results on five different types of drugs and it's immediate, like within five yes. minutes you get the results and it remembers like for, for many, many weeks. Really? Like okay, it, can, so. it, it identifies THC, at, at least THC, even uh, four weeks later, which is phenomenal because then yes. the drug testing can be done once a month. And uh, with that, they actually know that they cannot use drugs. They hate it that they are being tested <laughs> because it works. They actually know that they cannot use drugs because they will be tested again and yes. you'll, you'll find out. So monitoring is really a key factor. Gene, we're uh, running out of time, but is there some sort of a, like a resource or a book, anything that you think 
people should do, like should look for when they want to kind of learn more about this topic? Oh my, I wish I had thought about this in advance. Uh (laughs) So Jean, is there any last tip or advice that you'll give to parents as we wrap up uh, if they are concerned that maybe their kid might be using drugs or maybe have started to use drugs and they're afraid that they will go through this progressive downward spiral? Yeah, I just, I think I just remembered NIDA, the National Something on Drug Abuse. Um, This is a resource, online resource. National uh, Institute on Drug Abuse. Is this, are you clear on that? I just remembered the initials. (laughs) I just uh, Googled it and it's, that's what it is. Got it. Okay. There's a lot of information there. And I think it's helpful to know what are the symptoms and just know that when you're talking about teenagers, just because a teenager has a problem, gets in trouble with drugs, even over a period of time, does not mean that this has to become a lifelong problem. There's sort of a tipping point. And if you can catch the catch the problem early, deal with it early, people can recover. And they one of my brothers got into using drugs in as a teenager. My parents sent him off to a residential treatment center. He credits them with saving his life. Wow. Now, back then, I don't think there was much in the way of outpatient treatment. And the other thing is, if there's something making a kid, so it's, maybe it's just the peer pressure, in which case, change the peers. But if there's something making a kid so unhappy that they really prefer feeling out of it to being involved in their own lives, what is that? Deal with that. Is there depression? Is there anxiety? Is there something going on? Take seriously the possibility of of a mental health issue. Possibly that is very common. Just a thought, ADHD is a definite risk factor for drug use later on. Really increases the And if people need medication for that, they should take it because that diminishes the chances of developing a substance use disorder if they're taking that medication as prescribed. So actually dealing with the ADHD and and treating it is actually good for you. Absolutely. Now I saw because those medications, even though they can be addictive in themselves, they act differently on the brain of a person with ADHD than they do on the brain. They can be addictive for someone who doesn't have ADHD, mm. but not, especially if taken as prescribed for a person with ADHD. This was a common problem that I ran into is people wondering if they should do that. But yes, if your kid needs medication, <laughs> medicate them as prescribed. Jean Faber, thank you so much for taking the time and debating and into these topics with us and reminding us of some important tools. Thank you. Thank you. And, it's been uh, fun. Thanks. And I will see you guys next week on the Team Drug Abuse podcast. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Teen Drug Abuse podcast. To get additional resources and support, go to teendrugabuse.co.